Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Fellow fiends, welcome to another terrifying and delectable episode of Nightmare on Film Street. The horror podcast with zero credibility, but all of the blood, ghouls, and gore. Your puny heart can handle. <laughs> Let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to another episode of Nightmare on Film Street. I feel like I say that differently usually. I'm John. I'm Kim. And this week we are talking bed and bunker. That didn't make sense. No, it did. Nope. Nope. (laughs) It was good. Okay. Well, this week we are talking captive movies. This is also not making sense. (laughs) Have you guys ever been locked, chained to a bed, or trapped inside a bunker instead of getting- Don't all stand up. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, you're on Airbnb, you're looking for a bed and breakfast, you're not really paying attention to the listing, and the next thing you know, you've got 1,800 free nights because you're not allowed to leave. It sounds like a good deal at the time, but then you realize everyone who you love doesn't know you're gonna die underground at the hands of a mad woman? Whoa. (laughs) That went some confusing places. (laughs) Which, of course, is to say we are talking about Rob Reiner's Misery and Dan Trachtenberg's Ten Cloverfield Lane. Two very different but altogether similar captive captor movies. In an uh, episode we're calling Bed and Bunker. Good job, John. Brought it round. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty similar premises. You have isolation. You have a not altogether sane villain. Mm-hmm. And some interesting side elements. We got a... Um, Perhaps a hammer. Perhaps some aliens. Well, you, you know what? You know what I just realized saves both of our main characters in each of these movies? Freedom. Creativity. Oh. Art. Expression. Resourcefulness, I would say. I think it's all resourcefulness <laughs> yeah. and just cunning. Before we get into it, though, Kim, what is keeping you creepy this week? Well, Us came out just this past weekend, so I don't know if you saw it on the weekend. Judging by those box office numbers, you probably did. I'm getting kind of annoyed of saying Jordan Peele's Us. 
because like, hey, have you seen us recently? Or did you see us this weekend? You're like, no, we haven't hung out in months. Like, no, 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 the movie. It's a hard title. It's a really hard title to to describe. Yeah, that that might be it. Right. Yeah, us. Like that's not a title for a film, a title for anything, um, except for the movie that we're about to talk about. Us. I'll, I'll go first. I didn't love it as much as I thought I would. Yeah, I I I need to see it again. I'm still kind of stewing on it. Um, I think everybody had really high expectations for this one, and there were a lot of emotions and kind of like wanting something out of it and ex- what we were going to expect from it. And I just, I don't know, I was kind of just a little um, not wowed. It's got some really great performances and some really Hell creepy yeah. characters, and I love everybody involved, the, the duality of the roles that they're playing. It's really fun to watch it's really interesting to see them get into the two different characters that they all have to play which i love but the story didn't engage me as much as i was expecting and the trailer was really well cut really selling this as a traditional horror film and and i found the the trailer very genuinely scary so i was expecting the film in turn to be more traditional horror and very scary Hmm. Also, Jordan Peele himself has said that this is more of a straight horror film than Get Out was. And I always found Get Out to be a horror, horror film. film. Yeah. Exactly. So I was expecting a lot different than... I didn't find this movie scary. Yeah. And normally I don't say that about horror films. I'm normally not on the camp that horror needs to be scary. But I was really anticipating something spooky out of the Us characters. And... They delivered a lo- all of their trailer moments, but not much else for me. Yeah, especially given the like how creepy they look. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really expecting this movie to get under my skin more and just like make me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, um, and like it did. Sure, it did in a few moments, but um, not nearly as much as it promised. And, like, that's fine. Whatever. Cool. It is very effective for a lot of other people. I am seeing no shortage of people saying it's the scariest movie they've ever seen. And that's great. That's awesome. That means more people are going to go check it out in the theater. And I'm happy for that. But um, Supernatural stories are, are definitely really good for telling other stories. Like, it is a great way to build a metaphor. I didn't love it so much in this one. And I really wanted to like this movie is is my big problem. I, I want that whole third act to be another movie. I, I don't know that I... I really wanted to know what was going on with those characters. Um, and when I got it, I felt like I should have got it a lot earlier. It's really hard. I'm trying to... like Obviously, we don't want to spoil anything because there's a pretty good chance you haven't seen it yet. Um... But it's definitely worth checking out. I'm also looking forward to seeing it again. You know, maybe now that the um, the hype is gone and we can just sort of watch it without any sort of expectations. Maybe it's building a better story than than we know. Like mm-hmm. maybe we maybe it really needs a second watch to sink in. Yeah, and there is something to be said too about movies that make film fans and genre fans talk and discuss things. Totally. And. I can always appreciate that about a film when they they leave you with themes and ideas to chew on and what this means and what that means. So this film definitely has a lot of that. There is a lot under the surface. And whether or not I agree that it was done the most like seamless or eloquent way, there's still so much about this movie that I haven't quite figured out. And that is great. That's that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, 
if you do want to chat about the film more spoilery and um, you're looking for somebody to talk to about it, we do have a spoiler thread going in the Facebook Fiends group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS. You can get as spoiler as you want there. And if you want to know John and my uncensored opinions and, and hear us really get into um, the different plot points of the movie and and such. We did a full Patreon exclusive episode that dropped just last weekend. So that's at patreon.com slash nightmare on film street. Speaking of Patreon, before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to our most recent supporters, Catherine, Mike, Rebecca, Katie, Alexandra, Alexandra, Ryan, Jillian, and Stephanie. Oh, and Alexa, which is going to be great for some people, I'm sure. Guys, Look around you. We're all trapped in a bunker. There are plenty of... Oh, because it's like a... If people are listening on their bot things. Uh, there's there's plenty of room for all of us. I'm glad... I'm glad you're all here. Uh, and, and we're gonna make it out okay. Whether or not there's actually anything outside to be worried about, who knows? But is it, is it really worth walking up all those stairs? There's a lot of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, could, you could just sit down. We got a whole fucking jukebox down here. Puzzles? And, not a sledgehammer in sight. <laughs> Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. Uh, you're going to get today's bonus episode. We're playing a fun little game in tandem with uh, captors and captees and captives and captots. And there's hours and hours of bonus content there for you if you have not checked it out at patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. That's enough chit chat. Let's get into the movies. Let's talk 10 Cloverfield Lane. by Dan Trachtenberg. I probably said that name wrong. 10 Cloverfield Lane is currently sitting at a 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. 3 out of 4 from RogerEbert.com and 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Also has the greatest horror movie trailer ever made. It is so good. It is the best horror movie trailer. Yeah. The, the music and the cutting and John Goodman dancing at the record player. The jukebox. The jukebox. Yeah. So good. I watch that trailer occasionally. Like, I can't say I watch that movie all the time. Like, <laughs> I don't put it on every weekend, like every Sunday morning with my coffee, like mm, memories. But uh, but yeah, occasionally 
when I feel like listening to I Think We're Alone Now uh, by Brand. No, no, no. Oh, what's the name? Isn't it Tiffany? Tiffany, there we go. The version in the movie isn't Tiffany. It's though. like that original whatever's version. I don't know. It's it's like a doo-woppy era. It's probably the somethings. <laughs> sure. <laughs> there was like a template for making your band name. And if it wasn't just like you and the Like Jimmy and the <laughs> Yeah. It was just the somethings. And nothing's really changed. Uh but when I feel like listening to that song, I will occasionally just put on the trailer for this movie. And then I'm like kinda bummed that there isn't like a creepy remix version that i can listen to like a two and a half minute version where like it really winds down into something (laughs) i remember being so happy in the theater when it was in the movie because the the trailer with the song had got us so pumped yeah and then when it was actually in the film it's just like yes we're here this is what we came for (laughs) don't even wait for the end credits just walk right out so full disclosure this film was actually my number one pick for 2016, it was my favorite horror film of 2016. I don't remember where you had it. Because I think it was on the list. Do you remember what your ranking was? Nope. I don't really remember much of that list at all. Oh, well, uh, Train to Busan, I think, was your number oh, one. Oh, right. Yeah. That was a good year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I only remember because I make fun of you for saying that you don't like zombie films, and then every year you put zombie films on your top 10 like list. Like right in the top, right? <laughs> Train to Busan, One Cut of the Dead, Overlord, always. Yep. Because <laughs> hey, honestly, if I can find a zombie movie that surprises me that I like, it kind of immediately gets a bump. That's true. And That's there have true. been some really good zombie movies lately. 10 Cloverfield Lane, not one of them. Uh, you know what? I don't even know if it appeared. Was it? I think if it wasn't, if it was on my list, I don't think it was very high, because um, like that first time that I saw this, I don't love the end of it. I don't really know why. Yeah, I don't know why either. Yeah. You know, that is the most common complaint though I hear when you know I'm raving about this movie on the internet, and people are like, "Well, the ending, it feels, you know, this wasn't originally a Cloverfield movie," and I'm just like, "Fingers in my ears," and dance on by. <laughs> who, ca- who cares what movie it wasn't? Talk about the movie that it is. Every story had a first draft, right? Exactly. Although I would argue that transition did not necessarily work out for God Particle, um, hmm. but that isn't the film that we are speaking about today. So. Let's talk Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> I'm kind of a sucker for great title sequences and title cards. This movie's got one of the best ones. And like, and it's so simple. There's nothing to it. But uh, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, Michelle, is uh, packing up her, her house. She's, she's clearly leaving her fiancé. She's left a ring on the table. She's grabbed the few essentials, including a bottle of scotch. Uh, and she's out the fucking door. Uh, but she gets run off the road. And as as her car is careening and the camera is inside with her and it's just chaos and we're flipping around and it's just like cuts to silence and the black screen, it's like, Bad Robot presents. And then like, back to more chaos and then 10 Cloverfield, or just Cloverfield is what it says. Just says Cloverfield. And then the L's slowly extend to 10 Cloverfield Lane. Oh, man. Yeah, and that's the exact same design that they used for the poster. Do you remember? The poster yeah. was really good. Poster's insane. Mm-hmm. Where you, like, you have this like gigantic long, long tunnel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's like an elevator shaft yeah. down to a bunker in the basement. Um, and some really cool shots with that later in the film. Mm-hmm. So Michelle wakes up. She is chained to a pipe on a cement floor with a tiny flat mattress. And she realizes she is now the captive of John Goodman's character. <laughs> in case you were curious what the theme of this episode was. <laughs> we're going to say captor and captive a lot. We're going to say it like it's bolded. Yeah. <laughs> John Goodman's character, Howard, who is this socially strange, very um, 
uptight, rigid, controlled, silly person. Is the best. How else could you describe him? Uh, the guy's definitely got some sort some of obsessive control issues. Yeah, some <laughs> obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, like he doesn't like people touching. I don't think it's necessarily like a possessive thing. I don't think it's that he doesn't want Emmett, the other. Oh, person Oh, I who's think it's it. a possessive. Oh, I think thing. that's part of it. I think it's a possessive thing. See, well, like that's what I think is really good about this movie. Like John Goodman, especially. Like a lot of the quirks of the characters really sort of um, help underline their wants. Mm-hmm. I think this movie, had we have not gone with the captor captive theme, we could have paired it with Creep. Um, mm. Patrick Bryce and Mark Duplass's film because of the that borderline unsettling feeling you get with Harold's character because scene to scene and moment to moment and line of dialogue to line of dialogue it could go either fucking way it's a really good point you know what I mean there's just an unsettling air around him that this this film is isn't subtle like the creep films but it, it nails that unease and the things that you can you can pick up in human nature like with human connection and human interaction yeah yeah he is such a strange character because well, what's interesting, too, is that they are trapped in a bunker, and, you know, if they were just in an apartment or a house, like, everything about how this guy acts, what he says, how he operates, screams, get the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. But you literally can't. Like, But there's there's moments in the film where you you feel like you misunderstood him, and oh, yeah. you feel guilty, like, um, Mary like Elizabeth Maybe he's just got, like, character. Asperger's, right? And he's just not good at Or he's just stuff. a quirky dude, yeah. but and he, he doesn't know how to convey things in a socially accepted way, and we've, we've um, you feel guilty for, for assuming all these terrible things about him when he's actually just this simple, decent human being. Yeah, like, the way he talks is crazy, unless the end of the world has happened. And it's not like he's going to change how he speaks or how he interacts with people once the world has ended. So at some point you have to understand whether or not, um, like maybe he's actually out of the goodness of his heart trying to save some people as he's go as he's going down into his bunker mm-hmm. or he's just fucking nuts. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't know if we've, if it's come up much on the podcast, cause I don't know if we've done a lot of John Goodman films, but he is definitely... Is this the first one? I don't know. We haven't done... Um, we'd have to do Red State one time because I think that's dark enough to... We could. We could. Yeah. We could do like Comedians Turned Horror or something. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. Or we could just do like the dark films of Kevin Smith. Gotta do Arachnophobia at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. John Goodman's in that. That's true. Um, but what I was gonna say is John Goodman is definitely one of my favorite actors of all time. Right. He is so good in everything... Everything that he's in. It's crazy that this guy hasn't been nominated for an Oscar. It is crazy. That's insane. And he got nominated, I think he won, right? A Golden Globe for Argo? I don't know why he didn't get nominated in the Academy Awards. Just saying, guys. Argo has wasn't he, been, a he, he has to have been nominated. It, my cursory look on IMDb, I saw nothing. Ugh. Yeah. He is, uh, he's one of the greatest actors of all time. It's a shame that he doesn't get like leading man roles, but there has never been a movie... That says, and and also starring John Goodman, that I haven't said, I'm watching that movie tonight. Guy's amazing in everything he's in. That said, though, and this is true about a lot of Captor movies. In fact, both movies that we are talking about today. I don't understand why either of these people think that when they wake up from being unconscious after a car accident, after any accident, and they're stuck in an unfamiliar place, that they're just going to willfully take pills from you. Like, here, take these. It'll make you feel better. Like, no, thank you. 
sorry. And then they're so, oh, little, little, uh, little gratitude would be nice. Like, I have no fucking idea who you are, where I am. Like, I have no memory of you rescuing me, so I can't say thank you so much, sir. Um, I, I get what you're saying. I would be hesitant, but you Would are. you take those pills? In the sense of misery, I would have. Okay, in I 10 can... Cloverfield Lane, I probably would not have. Yeah. It depends on how much pain you're in. If you're in, like, level 10 frowny face pointing at the doctor's <laughs> office pain, you might take anything anybody gives you. I would have eaten his ice cream. I would have taken that ice cream. Not at that moment. <laughs> I might have. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this has been a rough day, guys. I'm so sad. I think I need this, yeah. I do like <laughs> I it in a bowl. I want the cone, too. <laughs> I want them both. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the plot of this movie, because we are just talking about uh, John Goodman being a creep. A wonderful creep. Oh, man, he's such a good creep in this movie. <laughs> like, the best creep there is. Okay, so yeah, a Mary, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead. Michelle wakes up in a bunker. Howard explains to her that she was in an accident, that he's rescued her, uh, and that there is somebody else in the bunker as well whose name is Emmett. The three of them, uh, as far as they know, are three of some of the only survivors left uh, in what was an apocalyptic attack. Don't know if it's chemical don't know if it's nuclear. All we know is that the bunker is safe and the air outside is poison. Yeah. And of course, Mary, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, I don't know why we have to keep saying her full name. Right. Could you um, say Michelle? Uh, unfortunately, Michelle is, well, you know, it makes sense. She is rightfully so kind of questioning this strange and quirky man that's holding her hostage. And so he allows her to go up to the entrance of the bunker to take a look at, like, Frank and Mildred or... Fran and somebody, fr- yeah, right? Yeah, uh, the his resident pigs who died by mysterious air poisoning. And we see, and so does Michelle, that they are definitely dead and rotting. Yeah. And so back down to the bunker we go. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily take that as, as evidence. I but... would have. I would have been like, fuck. I mean, he could have just as easily. Yeah, but I think Emmett, too, adds some credibility to his story. Emmett really does. Because he also says that he saw it. And he helped build it. Oh, yeah, that's right. He did help build the Like, he helps vouch for Harold in a way. Like, oh, Harold just is who he is. He's always been like that. Howard. Howard is how he is. He's always Just call him Howie. (laughs) He's always been like that. And, um... He adds some sort of like, oh, this is just how this man has always been. He's not this like crazy recluse. There's there's neighborhood people who know of him. Yeah, they just don't happen to know about the bunker. And because I helped build it, I knew exactly. I knew that this was the one safe place that there would be in the event of this this attack. Mm-hmm. He describes it as seeing uh, a gigant a gigantic red flash like of biblical proportions, unlike anything he's ever seen. And he just immediately rushed over to Howard's place. The only question I have, mm-hmm. because later we're told that Howard, it, it Howard admits that he is the one who ran Michelle off the road, mm-hmm. which I think we all figured that out anyway. But it was an accident because the attack had happened. He was trying to get back to his bunker. He was frantic. He wasn't paying attention. and he, But, you know, because he knew that this was his fault, he stopped to help her out bring her to the bunker so she's safe and everything. How come she didn't see the Flash? Because the Flash that Emmett is talking about was the attack. So I'm just saying there's some timeline issues there. Um, do you think that there were, do you do you think what he's saying is actually true? Or do you think he saw her at that gas station at the beginning of the movie and was like, I'm going to take her to my bunker? Yeah. And then the attack happened at he's some like, point. Convenient! Either after her car was off the road or... Mm. Um, what have you. Yeah, timeline-wise, it was probably like, run this girl off the road because I want her. 
And then as he's getting her out of her car and up to the truck, bang, flash goes off. Like, oh my God, we've got bigger things to deal with. But at least I've got a really good excuse of why I can keep her down. Like the, the lies that I fed every other girl that I've kidnapped is now actually going to be true. Uh, unfortunately, Emmett forces his way in and he's stuck with somebody else. It's kind of ruined his plans. Yeah. But like that uh, that does lead me to like a big thing that I wrote down in my notebook here. It's uh, the chicken or the egg thing. Do you think he built the bunker because of the paranoia and it just so happens to be a nice place that he can bring uh, girls that he wants to kidnap? It's, or do you uh... think he always wanted to kidnap girls and that's what fed into this quote-unquote paranoia of the end time, so I need a bunker? Hmm... How I always pictured Howard's story is that, so Emmett confirms that he does have a wife and daughter and that they live in Chicago or whatever, like they've left him. But that could just be what now, he's told. I know, I know. I'm just telling you how I experienced the right, film. Okay, right. So I believe that his wife and daughter left him and that in his loneliness or whatever that spawned from that, he kidnapped that local girl and started calling her Megan. But there's definitely some weird sexual stuff with it. So I don't, I don't, I think he's trying to replace like a, a lack of familial love. So I think the bunker was like a convenient, like, oh, I can just keep her here and make her my family. Oh, you know what? It's because this girl can be the daughter I care for. And when I need it, the wife. Ew. In one girl. You. Easier to control one girl why, than two. Why did you have a revelation with that? I was just like, let's not go there. <laughs> well, I mean, I was also thinking about the the board game scene where they're playing, I think, Password is what it is. Yes. That is the greatest That's scene so... in the whole fucking movie. Well, it's... For two reasons. Service level, yeah, because they're up to no good and, and we think that, that Howard has found out what's going on. But also, too, because he doesn't know the word... Like, the word woman yeah. doesn't come to him well, because he, that's it's, it's, how he's categorized um michelle's Michelle, character yeah. yeah he does not see her as anything other than a little princess uh, a girl like he that those that's all the only words that come to mind for him he cannot conceive of her as a woman uh that is a nutsy. Like, Which is, is crazy because she is the most m- resourceful macgyvering nancy drew that ever walked inside a bunker right from moment one she does not stop trying to escape I mean, like, there's there maybe a little bit in the middle where she realizes that maybe there's something to what Howard is saying, but she does not stop. She does, her character is do not wait around, waiting is pointless. And I think they even exemplify that in the beginning when she whittles down her crutch to a point. She's going to stab Howard, but she gets bored of standing around and waiting for him to come in. So she puts some of her clothes in the vent, lights it on fire, so the smoke detector will go off, and then he'll come in. Like, she's constantly trying to speed up how fast she can get out of that bunker. There is, no matter how dark it gets in there, or how grim, or how dangerous it is to do what she's doing, she does not stop uh, trying to escape. Mm -hmm. And, you know, first time watching this, it's really rewarding seeing all of those scenes because everything that's presented in this film, every um, every tool that the camera looks at or every object that the camera looks at becomes part of the plot in almost like an M. Night Shyamalan way. Yeah. Uh, It's all tools for Michelle to use to ultimately survive, one, being held captive, and two, the Cloverfield part of the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I do want to criticize the film in that, in that sense that although it is rewarding on like a entertaining movie watching level, I think the perfect seamless way everything rounds up in a nice little bow at the end makes this a little less than perfect because the film is too pristine. Okay. Like it's, it's 
It's unrealistic. Everything, and everything and I understand we're talking about a movie with aliens and a, and a captive who's holding people in a bunker. Like, I know that in itself is not a realistic premise, but they did a really great job of taking this sensational story about insane, improbable events, and they... They made really well-rounded characters, mm-hmm. but it's almost too perfectly set up. Like, you know, a video game, the olden time video games, when you would walk into a room and you knew all the items you could interact because they, with. Because they would glow a little. They had a different <laughs> amount of, like, pixelization. Or, like, when you're watching um, Scooby-Doo or Bugs Bunny and how you knew what was backdrop and what was going to be interacted with in the scene because the backdrop was really painterly and everything else was just comic colored or right. just, like, one tone color. This movie's like that. Like, the girl that um, Howard happened to have kidnapped was also wearing the earrings that she was wearing when she was kid when she was kidnapped and attacked in the bunker to leave the same earring that was in the photograph and she wrote help me and her hand was bleeding at the time that she wrote it and there's blood on the earring and um, oh, that she had the stuff. bottle of alcohol in the back of the truck, which happens to be able to make a Molotov cocktail when she has no other means. I love that. Everything. I know, but it, it's great. And it's fun upon first and second watch as a moviegoer. It's super entertaining in that like kick, like shoot em up kind of way. Yeah. But when you're watching it a third or a fourth time, you're just like, oh, this is just a little too perfect. I think it makes that, for a tight script. That, I think it makes no, it No, it's great. a very yeah. tight script. And I'm saying it's it's good and it's it's good on a first watch but it 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 takes it away from being realistic everything just happens to work out for this character in these really profound ways that she would have died but it's because uh well it's okay i'm not gonna what if that that um molotov cocktail didn't make it in that thing's mouth like game over game fucking over hey i mean a lot of people would have said game fucking over whether or not they knew that cocktail was in the back seat anyway right like she was just like i gotta fucking try because why the fuck not and uh you're right yeah sure like uh, against all odds she got out but i mean but it's against all odds against all odds against all odds against all odds yeah i thought one of the things you were gonna complain about was the um was it like the CO2 canister that he uses to to freeze the alcohol for disinfecting that she also uses later to break a lock after mm-hmm. he's told her like, oh, back when I was in the Navy, we you know, if the CO was being a jerk, we used to freeze the lock while he was in the bathroom door and break it off. I thought that was great because she remembers that story. It's just a fun little anecdote in a scene where you're realizing that, you know, maybe Howard's not as bad as we think he is. But she uses that and retains it and keeps it for later on when she needs to escape. Mm-hmm. Also, that escape, I think, is uh, point positive that his plan was always to build the bunker to kidnap girls. Uh, because... He just has the acid on hand? Well, it's not that he has... Oh, that acid, right? We'll get back to that. No, uh, where she freezes the lock, breaks the lock, and that's the escape hatch that she's able to get out of. It is not... It's nothing like the airtight seal that he has at the opening. Mm. Like, there is there is nothing about that little hatch that says, oh, this is going to keep out all airborne pathogens. Like, like, it doesn't have a double wall or anything. Yeah, it doesn't have anything. Like, I understand that it's essentially where the air filtration system is. So, I mean, like, we need fresh air to be pulled in. But it's it's definitely not the kind of setup you would expect to see for somebody who is going, like, the whole nine yards on making a absolute, an absolute, like, nuclear bomb safe bunker. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I think the acid is a good giveaway. <laughs> yeah, the tub of ass. The acid is a pretty good giveaway that you are planning on killing people and hiding them. Because why does he need it? Well, and he was initially going into that bunker alone. Emmett wasn't supposed to be there. That's what he says. Yeah. yeah. She was going to wind up in that bucket of acid. 
in the bucket of acid. Oh, yeah. Don't you think that's how he got rid of Megan? Yeah. But I think, so I, the problem is, is we don't really necessarily know his MO because he doesn't fully get revealed to us like the dark side of him. It's all insinuated from like that photo and, and how Megan could have died is maybe she almost escaped or something like she did something where she, she, she died as an accident and she attacked him and he was defending himself and she, cause I just don't see him killing her. I don't see him killing uh, Michelle either like I see him as as th- like getting slashed and throwing her in time out before getting um, before killing back yeah but Megan exists in a world where there was no apocalypse and she doesn't exist now she just disappeared nobody knows what happened to her so no matter what we don't he, know he has killed her yes yes yeah yeah but Do you... we don't I just don't think we know how that all went down I I see him as wanting to keep uh, a companion mm. Do you think he used the end of the world line on Megan? Like, do you think he was like, I saved you. It's okay. End of the world. We can't go out I'm just going to leave my bunker for a little bit. Well, I think he just, maybe he just never left the bunker. Oh. Like, let's say he's, he's not independently wealthy, but let's say he owns his own house. He's got a bank account set up for his property taxes and whatnot throughout the year. Maybe he's got an accountant that handles that. But, you know, if you own everything, like you've paid off everything that you own, and you have enough food for however many years. You don't need to leave the bunker. You don't need to leave the bunker. Yeah, I didn't think of that. So I'm, I I would imagine he's done that with Megan. Or alternatively, uh, yeah, he would occasionally, he would leave for work and come home and Megan would still be locked in the bunker. Hmm, that's interesting. We'll have to corner the screenwriters if we ever meet them. <laughs> I, you know, it could... <laughs> It could even be that... Um, tell me about Megan. <laughs> yeah, tell me. What happened to Megan? We want answers. We're like TMZ reporters cornering <laughs> them in the fucking doorway. No, like, uh, I wonder if, like, uh, you hear about, like, Howie Mandel. Howie Mandel's got a, a problem with germs. And apparently he has, I've heard, has a guest house that if he has... Like a cycle that he's going into where he just needs to, like, be alone. He goes over there and then, like, debriefs himself, comes back. This could be 100% fake. But I could imagine a world where somebody is is in the depths of a vicious cycle where I need to... Like, Howard Hughes needs to lock himself away in, in just a movie theater, away from everybody, until he recuperates and is okay with the idea that germs exist and he can go back out in the real world. Maybe that's something that... Howard needs to do. Maybe he gets too conspiracy minded and just like uh, the chemtrails. I gotta go underground for a month or two. And he just takes a girl with him when he goes. That's really creepy. Oh, what he's doing here isn't? Yeah. Come on. He kills Emmett and then gets dressed up and has a clean shave and like, don't worry, that's now so that he's creepy. gone, we can do whatever we want now. Yeah, that's so creepy after that happens. So after he shoots Emmett, which is a huge surprise, it comes because. Michelle and Emmett have decided that they are going to escape. This is after they found the earring and determined that Howard has killed this girl, Megan, who he's been saying is his daughter all along. Well, also because she shows the photo to Emmett, and Emmett's like, nah, that girl's name isn't Megan. That exactly. girl's name is, like, Louise. I went, to, I went to high school with her. She disappeared. So Michelle has been fashioning a um, gas mask and biohazard suit out of an old shower curtain, and they've been doing it on the down low, but Howard finds out... And when he confronts them with a big giant vat of acid, <laughs> Emmett ends up in it. Oh, yeah. And 
he cleans up and and he then he cleans himself up and he's clean shaven he's wearing a collared shirt and it's just like finally things are as they're supposed to be and he's so chipper yeah i'll go make dinner you have your ice cream like i am not in the mood to do anything but scream right now that bus ticket right that folded up bus ticket like you can tell it's been opened like i almost cried in the theater when we first saw this right i was like you can't cry in a sci-fi horror film you (laughs) fucking loser it's a human story kim it just happens to have some sci-fi horror elements around it It had so many folds so many folds Mm. he's definitely taking it out like i know i looked and looked at it right like (sighs) every day this could have been me why didn't i do this Mm. anyway Speaking of seeing it in the theater, I think this was the first movie we saw in like ultra AVX, and uh, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, <laughs> ultra audiovisual experience. I think audiovisual experience has got to be it. Either way, big screen, big sound, um, and and big popcorn could not have been a better movie to, uh, to big popcorn. <laughs> oh, okay. It was a great movie to see in Ultra AVX because uh, you you would maybe expect to see a superhero movie in that kind of setting. I think it's usually what they're used for, superhero movies, action movies. But the, Big budgets. The calculated use of sound in this movie is so fucking impressive. Like, for instance, when the knife goes through that vent the first oh, time, man. when Michelle's trying to do her final big getaway, she's got the suit on, she's going through the vent because she knows the backup hatch, and she's... Ugh. Every single one of those knife plunges was like an explosion. Oh, so loud. And that gun when he shoots Emmett too, yeah. And he's screaming the whole time like, because his face is like melting off. off. Oh, man, just stay with me. And there's so much skin dangling off his hand. The determination with the level of, he's at a 10 level of frowny face pain. That level of determination is the scariest thing. Just when, if I had a really bad paper cut, I don't think I could chase anybody down. I'd be like, (laughs) but his arm is a goop of skin. I think he wants her to die with him, right? Like that's explode with me. (laughs) Explode. But yeah, the the gunshot, all of it, all of like all of those sequences, because the majority of the movie is is fairly quiet. We're in a bunker. And most of the sounds that we hear are... And I think we're alone now. And I think we're alone now. It's, it's nice and quiet. Uh, there doesn't seem to be anyone around. One around. Yeah. Something about it, something, a sound. Um, yeah, it really popped in the uh, in the Ultra AVX theater. And which, I mean, is, is like part of a bigger conversation about the sound design in this movie. Uh, and I think sound is, is really how we show perspective in the movie as well. The audio that we hear is is almost always from Megan's ears. Uh, because especially after that gunshot sequence, I think every I think we've seen that in movies enough to expect it. But your ears are ringing, and we are Michelle at this point, and we can barely hear Howard talking to her, trying to tell her like it's okay, he was gonna hurt us. But like sound slowly comes back into it. Uh, we also see it earlier in the movie too. Uh, when she is, uh, when she's first trying to escape, after she like bashes that bottle on Howard's face, and she's finally made her way up to the padlock, and just before she gets out, there's a woman there, and that woman is screaming at her, and it's all super muffled, but it like becomes clearer and clearer and more into focus as Megan's adrenaline is starting to drop because it starts to the sound starts to suck out as we see Howard going for his keys to open the bottle, where he realizes that you know she has them in her hand. But it helps, like, get us into her character. So, like, it's it's her journey. It's her story. It's it's who we're with. Mm-hmm. It think- also, I think, especially what you're saying with the, um, when we first see the, wo- the woman at the door, 
it helps make where they are feel more like a tomb. Like you can feel the mm. thickness of the walls with how muffled it is at first. And you're right, the 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 sound of it moving and changing is like the rush of adrenaline. Yeah. Um, which is so crazy to point out that that can be achieved just through sound alone. Yeah. Because I don't know if I noticed that consciously, but now that you're saying it, I can literally hear it in my mind's ear. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. And at the end of the movie too, when we're when she's escaping, she's put on her like her her makeshift MacGyver hazmat suit, and we don't think it's weird or strange so much because, like, she needs it to survive, you know, just in case. And when we get out, most of the audio, it's, like, inside her helmet. And, and the it's just camera like, is inside yeah, the Yeah, it's helmet. right, yeah, yeah, like, we're, we're right claustrophobic. And you can hear, like, there. the... Like, <laughs> that was yeah. gross. Why yeah. did we do that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. But, um, but, yeah, like, we're panicked, we're frantic, and then as she starts to realize that it's just a regular, normal day... She takes her helmet off and we can hear bird sounds. Yeah, and then bugs and stuff. Yeah, and it's like, it's less panicked. And then all of a sudden we cut out to a wider shot and we see her in her whole suit and she looks like a crazy person. And like, and we're with her in that moment because that's her realization. Um, I just, I just love the And then sound 10 seconds later, it's like, no, there's aliens. So. Oh yeah, by the way, there are aliens. And then they <laughs> drop something in the fucking corn. Get out of here. And it's got a sucker face. It does. No weird ass like sucker, sucker face. It's like a sucker face bear dog. It hates car alarms. And humanity in general. <laughs> so let's talk about this because I've, I've I've talked about this with a few people on Twitter before. Okay, that the monsters from Cloverfield, uh-huh. the original film, and the monsters from Ten Cloverfield Lane mm-hmm. are not of the same species slash planet slash whatever. Especially now after God Particle, uh, the theory is that they are of different timelines okay but i mean in god particle the only real monster we see Humans. is the clover oh. variant <laughs> um if anything cloverfield paradox is more tied to cloverfield than ten cloverfield lane is so yeah like okay so are there different species uh maybe and i th- a lot of the complaints too were that in this one we actually get a spaceship and we see some biochemical warfare mm-hmm. and People were really mad because the original Clover is more like a um, giant monster movie. It's not an intelligent species movie. It's sure. not about an alien invasion. We we kind of understand or gather that Clover is not an Earthling, yep. um, especially if you watch that Ferris wheel scene. Okay, well, here, <laughs> let's go back to the Ferris wheel scene for a second because the other... Oh, we're getting some Clover spiracies up in the here. The other school of thought here, and I don't mean to... I mean, to take you to college on this one, but we're going back Cloverfield 101, that Ferris wheel scene. I think this is, I think this is a different way to look at it. Okay. We are not seeing the clover monster fall into the water. We are seeing a satellite that has been knocked out of orbit and fallen back to Earth. That once it hits the water and it sinks, it disturbs the clover monster. That's one school of thought. Where do you get that from? Uh, the internet. Why is it a satellite? Why couldn't it be an egg? Well, it's, apparently it has something to do with the Japanese company that Rob from Cloverfield is going to work for, who has some dealings in This everything. is a found footage movie, John. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's, a, there's a story behind the story, Kim. Okay. Um, I've heard that theory online. Now, here's, here is my, my hope. I think it ties into what you're saying here about 10 Cloverfield Lane and my desires for the next Cloverfield movie. Or, honestly, Cloverfield 8. I don't even give a shit. This is such a wild idea. I do not think it could be the next movie. But because of the instances with Cloverfield Paradox and 10 Cloverfield Lane, let's assume 
aliens have come to Earth. They are here to conquer, and it's because of the God particle. Like, that's part of it. That was the that was what caused it, and that's why the aliens are here, because now we're in some weird other universe, and they're, they're, they're coming for our natural resources, right? Okay. Now, Clover, separate monster, has been awoken, is currently terrorizing the city when the aliens attack, <gasps> and Clover is now like Godzilla. He's our protector, and he's going to tear these aliens down and save humanity, and at the end, he's probably going to die. We're going to be like, oh, no, he was our pet. Oh, my God. And he'd be like, I just wanted to love you. Okay, so... I love that. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. I agree. That'd be great. That's great. It's a little wild, though. Uh, no, I Directed love by it. the guys that did Crank. <laughs> That's how I'd see that movie. Well, what would it, would it be? It can't be like um, Godzilla versus Mothra. What would it be like Cloverfield versus Cloverfield? Mm, Cloverfield versus Martians. Cloverfield versus the Martians? <laughs> yeah. I like it. Cloverfield saves Christmas. Okay. This, these yeah. are good. These are all good. Yep. Yep. Um, so. That's a great theory. <laughs> it's probably not true, but it I would totally watch that. I think that would save Cloverfield the franchise. Um, Can you imagine? But my belief, and this is what I'd always argued, is that Clover is definitely part of the same alien species that these monsters and their weird spaceship are part of in 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm-hmm. And my argument is that if, say, humanity went to another planet and, mm-hmm. you know, we were just going to, like, fuck shit up and we had these giant-ass... Uh, hippos that we had you know we we want to we don't want to send humans there we don't we don't want to waste perfectly intelligent brains yeah so we'll drop some giant ass hippos sir the landing area is clear what would you like to do drop the hippos (laughs) (laughs) like i would give anything to see that (laughs) but you know what i mean like i think that they're just a different species of the same planet like clover i don't think is an intelligent species like i don't think it's got destruction on its mind it's yeah. just a destructor because of its size now it's like if you dropped Cl- clover into a giant like rainforest he would just be like walking around and looking for something to eat like he wouldn't be just like must find humanity to smush he just yeah. happened to be in manhattan this is where they drop him and they were shooting at him now here's the thing i think that speaks perfectly to what howard was saying what was Howard saying? Howard, okay, so when they hear a sound, they think it's a helicopter, and he's like, yeah, but it's not ours. It's definitely not anything that we have. I think this is phase two. Because he's saying that the- Like the big, Clover was phase one. Clover was phase one. You send it into your like highly populated cities, your metropolises. You take out as many people as you can, big big headquarters. Yeah, you right? drop a bunch of hippos. Yeah, you drop them hippos. And then They're you hungry, go in. hungry. <laughs> And then you go in and you shoot up everybody that's still remaining. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we are seeing in Ten Cloverfield Lane. It's phase two. It's the more intelligent people who are coming in after the dogs have sniffed everybody out. And those dog things were the one we encountered in the car sequence. I that's true. There is so much action in the final moments of this movie. So much action. Because she she goes from like the air is poison, the air's not poison. Oh, this dog, gotta get keys, go to this car, go back to the truck, go back to this car. Go to the house, shit. Aliens behind the house. <laughs> now, in that whole sequence, we go... I have no idea what time it is when she decides to 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 break out. But I think Howard comes to get them in the middle of the night. Because it's, like, super dark. Um, so I can only assume that it's the morning by the time she breaks out. No, in fact, he says he's making them dinner. Okay, so this makes a little more sense. Because I was going to say, by the time she breaks out, it gets dark fast. Mm. It's, it's bright out. She hears birds. They're flying around. It's getting like dusk by the time the thing gets dropped in the corn. But as soon as she's hiding in the barn, it's like dark, dark. out. And it's probably just because like Batman rules, aliens don't look cool during the day. 
Yeah, also, I think she'd be caught way faster if it yeah. was bright out. And that fucking shot, right? Where, like, she's coming up to the house, but the alien ship's coming up from behind, yeah. and it's, like, super backlit, well, and, then and that when, green mist when comes When the, uh, the ship finally comes up, you see that this house is abandoned and all boarded up and, like, rickety. Yeah, you just cr- see the lights blaring yeah. through it. Yeah. I love it. Pretty cool. Totally worth it. Even if it's, like, timeline-wise, let's say it is actually morning, and it should be bright out. So worth it for that scene. Totally. Is there any other scenes that you wanted to talk about? Um, uh, I will at least say, I still don't love the end of the movie. You don't love it? No, I, I don't know what it is. Um, maybe, maybe honestly, maybe it's just that the bunker stuff is too good. And the paranoia is so well done that once you find out that it's all real, it's not, I don't know, it just doesn't. It's not that it doesn't work for me, because it works, and it's great. And I think, like, a lot of other movies, indie movies, you would have come out and found out that there was no attack, and it was just some weird thing. The fact that they're willing to go there and show you aliens and have, like, a full-on alien attack is great. Like, she has a fucking showdown with more than one of these aliens, and she destroys them. It's, It's awesome. I don't... I don't know. I don't love it. I'm talking about it now, and it's like, man, this is... Sounds great. (laughs) <laughs> I like it because it's even Howard's not right like he thinks that mm. there's been like some chemicals and there's nuclear fallout unless almost. the Martians finally found a way to get to us he's so certain that Martians exist <laughs> <laughs> but it's not an even a nuclear fallout it's almost like these ships are dropping quick acting poison mm. because as soon as the green is not on you you're no longer poisonous because it only touched me a little bit <sighs> just a, just a little bit but she takes the mask off at, like right after being submerged in that green nonsense and it's not burning through her suit or anything yeah. i think it's just as long as it gets her skin maybe. Uh, yeah i think she probably it's has just to inhale poison it. yeah but it's not a, like it's not a long active chemical which is interesting yeah what about you? Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? No. Uh, I think I'm ready to rate the film. Go for it. Uh, I'm going to give it a 3.5 out of 4. I'm also giving it a 3.5 out of 4. Uh, I think every time I watch it, I like that that ending more. Like, I've always thought that it worked. It just wasn't always my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just because the bunker stuff is so fucking good. Yeah. And I, you know what? I do love the mystery solving, like, as much as I complain about it. It just keeps it from being, like, the perfect film because it feels just a little too um, set up and a little too screenwriterly orchestrated. Sure. But it is really fun to watch this character MacGyver her way out of every situation because you have somebody you really want to root for and she really earns mm-hmm. her freedom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. to say that, like, other characters, you have to earn your freedom to be in a horror film, but, like, you want to have somebody to cheer for, and from moment one, she is, like, fucking trying to get out. Yeah, and, like, she just does she doesn't just seize an opportunity at the end of the movie after an hour and a half of doing whatever this guy says because she's scared of him. Mm-hmm. She is always trying to find a way out. Mm-hmm. And it's only because of that that she's able to get out at the end when she can. Totally. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Moving on, let's talk about Rob Reiner's misery from 1990. He almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. Adapted from the Stephen King novel of the same name, Misery is currently sitting at a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb, 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, 3 out of 4 from Roger Ebert himself, and 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. I think everyone always loves this movie. Yeah. It's, uh, especially this time of year, I find any time from Christmas on, it's on a lot of the Christmas watch lists. It's on a lot of winter watch lists, snow watch lists. Um, and it makes a lot of sense because it's about isolation and being stuck indoors. It's a little bit cabin fevery, um, which is so funny because the day we're recording this, it is actually a snow day. We have taken a snow day. We're recording this way earlier than we normally do. Oh, yeah. Uh, we normally record at night. It's normally the most convenient time for us. And it's weird doing this in the day. Like, as I'm saying this, I'm looking out a window and it's just pure whiteness because it is we're supposed to get 25 centimeters of snow today um so misery was a perfect choice it worked out really well for this week's episode if you're if you're more familiar with the if you're an american listener and you're familiar with inches 25 centimeters is like a foot and a half i was gonna say just a lot it's it's (laughs) it's just a lot of snow yeah this movie is perfect uh this movie was always on tv for the longest time maybe it still is i'm not sure but back when i was watching tv all the time this movie was on all the time yeah and i think it's because you have performances from james con and kathy bates that are amazing it's a rob reiner movie from a william goldman script and it's not incredibly violent mm-hmm. and it's a pretty simple premise and it's kind of a, a fun little thriller like i i think it's it's got a good audience yeah. Um, it's more broad than, I would say, not most of Stephen King's stuff, but I think a a housewife might be more interested in watching Misery than, say, The Shining or Cujo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the rare instances where there's almost no supernatural stuff. That is also true. That might also just be for the movie. I don't think I've read this book. But I'm going to go ahead and assume there's no supernatural stuff in the book, too. Mm. Like Misery comes back to defend (laughs) she's haunted by the ghosts of the people she's killed Mm. like i don't know something like that right 
have no idea. Misery herself is is a wendigo. (laughs) (laughs) It just just floats in on the wind. Uh, Another fun fact about this movie, uh, we actually watched our VHS copy of this, which we picked up at a thrift store not too long ago, which is kind of what sparked this episode initially. Uh, And the tape, I don't know if I've ever had this happen before. The tape was moldy. Yeah. Uh, Like real. But not like, no, no, no. It was pretty fucking moldy. No, no, no. Here's Here's the thing. After watching it, I will agree with you. Very moldy. It's pretty fucking moldy. We should buy one of those tape cleaners for our VHS. It was pretty great, though. I actually really enjoyed it. Such is the quality when you watch VHS. Sometimes you get some fuzzes and stuff. Uh, our whole screen kept fuzzing out for periods. And it would be the most great, like, the greatest moments. Kathy Bates would be like, misery. Yeah. <laughs> Don't ever <laughs> like it, it looked like a, a video artist had taken this movie and just like put a bunch of codecs on it and just like made the weirdest most haunting art from the simplest scenes but there were full sections of the movie that were fine to watch yeah and then there were times where the, the vcr player would just be like no it's not working and turn off yeah it <laughs> like the whole vcr turned off it's like yeah we hit stop and then the screen went black and Get it on DVD. It took like it three. Just spit it back out. <laughs> it so it took like three hours, but we made it through. We watched Misery. I hadn't seen the full movie in a really long time. Like you, I'd watched it in parts on television, so I don't know if I'd seen the entire movie from beginning to end before. Oh, wow. okay. I hadn't sat down and watched the entire thing. And I think it's a it's a small story, kind of the premise you understand, you get without having seen it. But the performances of the two characters and the ebb and flow of this capture or captive and yep. captor are such a good dynamic. It's a fun movie to watch. Oh, a lot of fun. Especially knowing that, well, I mean, there are a lot of books by Stephen King where the, the main characters are definitely him, right? Like he <laughs> writes about writers and like, cool, write what you know. Uh, like, however the idea comes to you, just fucking go with it. But this one seems like almost the most personal, like the idea of... Uh, oh, I'm your number one fan. I just love you so much. Like, what happens if that was a crazy person? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And being like, what happened if your your big ticket item, what brought you your success, was what brought you misery? Uh, so I'm so glad you said that. There are so many good lines like in this movie. Like ironies of the word misery itself. I like, wrote almost every single one of them down. <laughs> oh, that's I think great. the one you're thinking of is, uh, I haven't been a good, <laughs> I haven't been a good writer since I got into the misery business. Oh, so good. It sh- this movie should have been called Misery Business. Oh, that would have been nice. Or Misery's Business. <laughs> there were, yeah, so many so many great uses of it where you're just twisting it. I love that we know that this character is somebody he absolutely hates. He's come to despise. He really loathes the fact that all he does is write these period piece romance type mo- stories mm-hmm. with this Misery character. So to to find out that she has a pet pig named <laughs> Misery is fucking great. It's so funny. It also comes at a point in the movie where she's picking up his new book. And one, he's sick of being there. He wants to get out. He still kind of believes her. Like, oh, the roads are a little too messed up. And I can't go to the hospital. But he has he's outstayed his want for a welcome by that point. He just wants to get out. And, and knowing that she's about to read his new book where he kills that character off for good. Uh, it's it's, it's going to be rough roads ahead and he wants out of there fast. 
Yeah, it's actually really great at the beginning because you always have this period in captive films where the captor is a little socially strange, as in our last film as well. Um, but altogether, like Annie's character in the beginning is she's small town, but she's like humble and warm and welcoming. She says she's a nurse. She splinted his legs. She set him up all nice. They're in the middle of a blizzard. So, I mean, the situation at first, there's not really much cause for alarm or suspicion. And she's feeding him she's taking care of him she has medical grade painkillers yeah, because so she like, says she's a nurse yeah yeah he's set up pretty cushy like until until the um the roads get cleared he's doing okay he's going to live through this have we taken the time to explain how he got there in case for anybody that hasn't seen the movie oh he just got in a car accident <laughs> yeah, he got into a car accident. She rescues him. Both his legs are broken. He can't go anywhere. And the roads, there's like a huge blizzard that bl- blocked them all in that we keep talking about. And that's why he can't get to a hospital or back to his daughter. And also the phones are down. Yeah. Because, you know, if if you're in a horror movie, there are no phones. And yeah. everybody will tell you. <laughs> that, that remote cabin just like upstate New York was great when you were looking for a little retreat to write your novel. But, oh boy, is it awful once you're secluded from the rest of the world. And also the downside of the blizzard is that his car is entirely buried. So the police don't have any idea where he is. As far as they know, he just disappeared off the face of the earth. Yep. His credit card was last used at the inn he was staying at and it hasn't been used since and nobody's heard from him. Yeah, he could be anywhere from there back to New York. Maybe maybe he wants to disappear. They don't know. There's a local sheriff who knows something's not right about this. I feel like we're reading the back jacket. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. We're going to check in with that sheriff, though, with his super cute wife. I know. Their banter is great. They're so great. They're driving down. She puts her hand on his thigh. She's like, damn it, Martha. I don't remember her name. I'm sorry. But like, when you're in this car, you're not my wife. You're my deputy. I love it. That's cute. She's always nipping at him that like his desk is a a big, huge mess. That's why you don't work with your spouse. (laughs) (laughs) So Paul, James Kahn's character, was on his way back to New York to deliver the manuscript for his new novel. His first, first book. Yeah, his first book after Misery. He's finally killed her off. He's getting back. He's writing something from the heart this time. Uh, something about slum kids like himself, full of caca duty language. Uh, which, Misery. Nope, not Misery. Uh, which, <laughs> I want to call her Misery, too. I do, yeah. Constantly want to call her Misery. Uh, everybody else in this movie, other than the two of them, is named Misery. <laughs> we have a central character that we never see, a pig. Uh, they're all Misery. That's it. The sheriff's named Misery. <laughs> the town. A town called Misery sounds great. Oh, my God. That sounds amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, foolishly, he lets her read that book. And she hates it. She's so angry. She's so She shakes, she rattles the bed. His poor legs. Doesn't she smack his legs at the same time? I thought she just like she lifted the the back legs of the bed and like slammed them down. It's still rough. But because it's so full of filth, she makes him burn it. Because he needs to free himself. Yeah. She he needs to get back. He's gotta write more misery novels. (laughs) She thinks she's giving him a gift, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna I'm gonna release you from this. This awful burden that you've put on yourself. At that point, has she read the ending yet, or she hasn't even gotten? I don't think it. she's gotten to the end of it. Ugh. Oh, you mean the like the ending of his mis- of his new misery um, novel? Yeah. I don't even know if she's picked it up by that point. Oh, yeah, because she she has him burn that manuscript pretty early on in the film, and yeah. that scene, I I think I'm picking that scene as the scariest moment in the film. There's so many moments where she's eerie and creepy, but when she's 
doing that weird offhanded threatening mm. where she's talking with her hands and splashing the lighter fluid on his duvet yeah because he's he's holding the matches at this point and he's refusing to light the manuscript which she set up in a barbecue yeah next to him and she's slowly dousing him in lighter fluid as she's saying like you really need to do this you need to do it for yourself you need to do it god wants you to do it and like all this stuff and nothing she's saying is outwardly threatening but she's dousing him in lighter fluid oh yeah that is so choice is clear low-key menacing yeah she either burn the book or i'll burn you that's what it comes down to what you want to die for your art? Because I'm also going to burn the book after I burn you as well. So and after this in- instance, so he does end up burning the book. It's really traumatizing for oh, him. Oh, man. It's, so James it Conn be. plays it so well. Yeah, because he tries to figure out. He's like, oh, my, my agent already has a copy. All the publishers have copies. And then she quotes something he said in an interview 11 years previous saying like, oh, no, you're superstitious. You only have one copy. And she, she quotes what he says like verbatim. Yeah. Uh, because she's his biggest fan. There's something so interesting about this, too, because... Uh, uh, so she's going off about his habits and what he does, where he writes, what he, how he writes. But at the beginning of the movie, we also see him finishing up that, that manuscript that he's going to deliver to his publisher. He's got a single cigarette, a single match, a bottle of Dom Perignon. Uh, how does she pronounce it? Perignon. Yeah. Or Perignon. Yeah, something like So Dom Perignon, um, as, as Annie Wilkes would say. So we know that he has habits, and very specific habits. And about halfway through the movie, she gives she gifts him another single match to burn that manuscript. We also come back to that at the end of the movie as well. Like it's just brilliant book book ending for this movie. But I, I love how his habits are always used against him because mm. it just goes to show that this is a turning point in his life. And if he can escape out of this, it's going to completely change who he is as a writer. He is in that transitional moment between uh, the the Paul like Sheldon that he was, and- yeah. Because he's also putting misery behind him. He's trying to become somebody else. Mm-hmm. And like all of those those habits and those comforts that he has, they need to go away in order for him to become a better person. It's interesting too because how metaphorical. Well, yeah, Annie <laughs> Annie Wilkes also kind of represents the misery character. Like it's interesting that she is his biggest fan and represents everything that he hates about misery. Uh, he has to kill misery in order to to go on with his life. So he's got to kill her as well. Like, she's literally got him by the fucking coattails. So after this point in the film, it's kind of like all pretenses are off. He stops asking when the roads are going to be plowed. There's kind of this weird unspoken um, relationship between the two of them where it's definitely understood that he is captive. And once Annie Wilkes reads the Misery story and realizes that he has killed Misery off, like... Mm -hmm. All bets are fucking off. And she sets him up with a home office and he is to rewrite Misery (laughs) and bring her back to life. In her honor. In her honor. She's so delusional. She is. So delusional. Well, at this point, you're like, oh, she wants to marry him. Oh, yeah. There's even a moment later on where she says that, like, I was in love with Paul Sheldon, the writer, but now I know I'm I'm in love with Paul Sheldon, the man. Uh, but I know that you don't love me. And, like, that's, the, that's that moment in, like, where it's raining outside, right? Like, he's been there long enough that snow has turned to rain. And she sometimes gets a little blue. Oh, my God. I forgot about this. So this is the creepiest scene. Like, yeah. rain always makes me sad. And then all of a sudden she pulls a gun out. Yeah, and she pulls the trigger. Like, she's just, like, she just wants to use it. Like, I have to go now. And you know what she says? Like, I think about using this sometimes. Oh, that's right. And then, and then it's, like, quiet for a minute or two. And then she's like, I have to go now. I think I might load it. 
You're like, what? And then and she, she just says, leaves. Think, she just drives put, off. Put bullets in it. Oh. That is the creepiest thing a human being has ever said to another human being that has their legs in a brace, in a bed, in your house, as a stranger. Yeah, you know, that familiar situation. <laughs> Everybody's been there. They do a really good job of making him seem weak. Like, not not pathetic. Physically yeah, weak? Yeah, physically weak. Because it's somewhere around there where um, she's left the house during the day. Uh, it, he sends her off to get new typewriting paper. Because this, this paper smudges. Smudges. Yeah. Uh, it, she's not happy about that. But She gets so mad. <laughs> but she drops a bobby pin. I think that's the real reason why he wants her to leave. Just so he can get the bobby pin. Because he's going to fashion it as a key to unlock the door. So he can occasionally get out and maybe call the fucking cops. But even just that scene alone like that whole sequence is all about how hard it is for him to get around and how he can't escape but we begin it with how hard it is for him to just pick up a fucking bobby pin like the rest of it all plays out so perfectly because of that moment Mm -hmm. Uh, because he he has to crawl around and uh he can't (laughs) he can't reach a doorknob he can't open the door he can't he's not in a position where he can steal a knife and fight back because he doesn't have the strength to do it Oh, and by the way, when he finds the phone so he can maybe call for help, it's fake. It's not even a real phone. Yeah, like he couldn't. It's not It's not even that she unplugged it or cut the cord. It's just not real. <laughs> oh, man. It's nuts. The, the interesting thing, too, about Paul Sheldon is that he kind of, once he understands he's in this situation, he, like michelle in our last film has a strategy kind of right away Mm. and this is where the really interesting thing comes from these captor movies because it all comes down to your characters and for him because he is without mobility and he doesn't have any strength and he's recovering he is using manipulation and trying to understand who annie is as a person to kind of use it against her so he's often very sweet and sly with her and he's he's got this kind of long con and we and we gather that because he stops taking his pain medication Mm -hmm. and he starts hiding it in the mattress of his bed which he's cut open and we obviously you can kind of gather that he's going to try to poison her and so he's really slowly working almost like crafting a story about this relationship blossoming so that when um he finally writes misery back into her story and she's been reborn reborn to annie's liking yeah <laughs> uh they celebrate dinner together to celebrate misery's return yeah and um, while she's out getting a candle so they can have a real candle at dinner he slips that whole packet into her drink but butterfingers here messes up knocks over her cup and spills the entire glass of red wine and all of the contents like a month or two's worth of pain medication that would have at least knocked her out, right? Um, Like, his escape, he's just watching it flow onto the table and disappear. And then, like, from that moment on, the the guise is completely dropped before he was, like, sweet as sugar to her. And, like, she would blow him a kiss and he would catch it. And, like, (laughs) there was just, he was really feeding into this romance this romantic delusion she had. And then afterwards, she's like waving at him outside and he gives her the finger through the window. Like it's it's really great, um, the ebb and flow of how he's using his only resource, which is the relationship to, one, prevent her volatility because whenever she's unhappy, she gets like crazy. Oh, yeah. And to just to keep going another day so that he can hopefully get strong enough to get out of there. 
And it's awful, too, because he... He hated... Well, it's not awful, but it is kind of funny how much he hated writing the Misery stories. And now he has to write the worst Misery story ever just to to satisfy the worst Misery fan. <laughs> oh, man, it's nuts. Like, every horrible thing that could be written. She's like, oh, my God, this is so brilliant. And then there's this and that and connection. She's and she's royalty. Yeah. <laughs> just like every horrible decision you could possibly make to write into your character, he has to do it in order to please her. Um, so it's just pulling teeth for him, right? But every page keeps him alive another day. So uh, at this point, he's just writing to stay alive. And the worst part about that, too, is he's writing toward his own end. Because once the book's done, what's going to happen then, right? Mm-hmm. She's either going to kill him or she's going to have no need for him anymore. Like, no matter what, things do not look good once it's over. And did you get the impression when the cop comes by that she was actually planning on selling that book? I don't know. I think she's just trying to cover her ass. Like, I think she's just being over eager. Yeah. And uh, she wants to show him that room before he discovers it. Because mm. who knows? His name might have been on the top page. That's a good point. But yeah, so like, meanwhile, while she's she's got Paul Sheldon and writing this book for her, the cop is getting closer and closer and closer. He's reading misery novels. He's flying around in the helicopter. They're trying to find the car. He knows something's up. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though everybody's kind of... Uh, chalked paul sheldon up as dead because yeah they've they've found his car at this point but they haven't found the body uh he notices though that that somebody used a crowbar to open the the driver's side door which means that he didn't get out by himself which means he's probably if not alive dead if if not alive somewhere else then dead but not in the forest where they think he is so he's gonna he's staying on the case and he comes across a very familiar line in one of sheldon's books where misery is going to court uh and she says that uh I answer to a justice higher than man, and I will answer only to him. Uh, and something about that strikes him, so he writes it down and he keeps it. And later on, when he's in the library, looking through old newspapers, he comes across a, a clipping of Annie Wilkes, who's been accused of murder, who said the exact same thing in court while defending herself. Yeah. This comes right after Paul also finds her fucking scrapbook. Of murder. Right? It's got photos of her pig in there, so it is still just like a regular scrapbook. In and about, like, new child, dead. There's photos of Misery the pig. Yeah, but there's also, like, a newspaper clipping of her husband who fell to his death, which is unlike the divorce she explained. Yeah, it's not what she said happened. Also, top nurse of the school fell Dies. to her death yeah so she's just killing everybody ahead of her she's killed a bunch of kids at the nursing home she's killed elderly people at the nursing home she has killed so many people mm-hmm. now i wanted to pose this question to you yeah and i don't know i don't know what you're gonna say okay so giving that paul sheldon mm-hmm. is a creature of habit and he always writes the same isolated cabin yeah. And that's the Wilkes farm. Like, the cop knows it's the Wilkes farm. Do you think that this has all been a long con for her to intercept him at some point in his life? That's a great question. Because she does say to him that she knows he writes at that hotel mm-hmm. and would go to the hotel and park out front and just wonder what he was up to. So it's, she's essentially stalking him already. I don't think it's... Like, it just seems like an odd case of fate that she happens to be there to rescue him in this blizzard and she lives nearby. Oh, I I think it's, I don't think it's coincidental at all. I think she was following him. Mm -hmm. I don't think she was waiting for him to 
careen off the road so she could rescue him, but she definitely sees that opportunity as it came. I don't know that she ever follows him past the city limits. I think she just kind of like follows him while he's around town. Mm. And then when he's gone, his book shows up. So she's got that. She just reads it over and over and over and over again until he shows back up to write another book. Mm -hmm. I just think it's very interesting. Yeah. It would be maybe a little too convenient to find out that there were spikes in the road and that's why he fell (laughs) off or something. Or she was out there with a hose just making it a little slippery. I mean, I wouldn't put it past her character. I wouldn't either. (laughs) Because she seemed... Very ready to help him out of that car. Yeah. Who carries a gigantic crowbar with them? Who carries a gigantic man on their back? I couldn't carry <laughs> you if we were in a crazy accident. Like, I would probably, like, drag you a few feet and then give up and then maybe put you back in the car and be like, I'll go get help. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go find someone who can lift you. <laughs> yeah, like, I'll look for a sled. <laughs> you know, I obviously there are theatrical trailers that are leading up to this and it's based on a, a novel that surely a bunch of people had read but if you're going into this perfectly blind i think that's part of why they shot it why they shot it in the beginning because you wouldn't assume that it's a woman who saves him Mm. like you would just not think that and she's so like pleasant and sweet yeah like she's definitely lived on a farm her whole life so she's she serves his painkillers under a doily under doilies yeah (laughs) that was a really great moment oh there was something i wanted to ask you too and i don't remember what it was We haven't talked about the hobbling scene. I think we really need to talk about that. Otherwise, people are going to be very mad at us. Yeah. That's the scene everybody remembers in this movie. Yeah. Like, her holding the sledgehammer. Like, if they they make an action figure of her, if it didn't come with a sledgehammer, people would be angry. Oh, I'd revolt. I would be mad. I'd be mad. (laughs) I don't even care about action figures. If it came with the pills and the doily, I would totally buy it. I mean, that's that's a little different. Yeah, that'd be great. Use a coaster. (laughs) Yeah, James Caan's character just comes with, like... Uh, Lifting the toaster, the typewriter. And I was going to say a barbell with two typewriters on either end. <laughs> and he's got like those long shorts that they wore in the 20s. You know, like the, the swimsuit shorts. <laughs> and then he, his opposable feature is him being able to do fisticuffs from inside his wheelchair. <laughs> or pull a knife out of his um, sling. Oh, yeah. The fling slinger. <laughs> the fling slinger. Oh, man. I'm surprised he even went to sleep, period. Oh my god. When she whaps his foot, you only see the one foot. It folds so realistically. Like, it's, it's I'm shuddering just like describing it. Yeah. Oh man. By the way, this movie is directed by, I know I said it up top, Rob Reiner. What has he done? Rob Reiner uh, did This Is Spinal Tap. He's done like some romantic comedy family ish type stuff. You might recognize him as the dad in The Wolf on Wall Street. Pretty sure he directed Stand By Me, right? But more more importantly, and you will recognize this, like this guy's got like an insane career. You've you've definitely seen most of his movies. But I do actually think this would be a great double feature, also written by William Goldman, who adapted his own novel, um, The Princess Bride. Oh wow. Can you imagine? Two movies where somebody is essentially bedridden, surrounding a story that they are creating and following all throughout. This is a great double feature wow. with the Princess Bride. <laughs> But yeah, your brother used to watch All in the Family a lot as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. He was the son-in-law, the meathead. That's Rob Reiner. His dad's Carl Reiner, who was the writing partner with Mel Brooks. So, like, comedy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This has been Hollywood Corner. <laughs> Thank you for that, John. Um, I have another question for you. Yeah. This one I figured, because we're, we're nearing the end of the episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who would you rather be stuck with? Annie oh. Wilkes or Howard? Man, that's tough. That is... Not rather, but like, who would you 
Of the two, you're you're going to be held captive. You okay. get to, you get your choice of the two. Yeah. Um. Who? That's really hard. Uh. You, you think you might have a, a a chance with uh with with Annie Wilkes because she seems to want to keep him around, except when she gets blue. You got to play a more psychological game you, with Annie. A though. much more psychological game with Annie. But here's the. Uh, so just to come back to that hobbling scene one more time his legs are broken he's broken both of his legs they are finally starting to heal and she fucking breaks him again (laughs) oh i can't i can't get over that it makes me hurt (laughs) um it makes me hurt so so very much but howard comes with aliens so (laughs) he definitely comes with aliens but he also comes with just like snap decision and acid yeah yeah like at least with annie like they're uh, there is a real world that exists outside that you could hopefully get to. I guess now that we know there's no phone, there's no fucking chance. Like, you are against Annie no matter what. If I had to choose somebody to fight, I'd probably rather choose Annie. Um, yeah, I guess I'd rather fight Annie. Like, if it came to a showdown. Yeah. Howard just seems way too prepared. Annie is, it's a crime of passion, you know? Like, it's, it's maybe it's, it's, it's planned out. What am I fucking talking about? She's killed dozens of people. She's killed so many fucking people. Yeah, I mean, Howard, you could probably run away from, but you'd have to be running around a table because there's not much room in the bunker to run. Howard's Howard could throw that body weight too, right? There's no stopping Howard. He could throw a jukebox He's a military you. man. That's true. He was, he probably he was knows very how out of shape, though. <laughs> you see how many fizzy pops he's drinking at dinner? That's his first but problem. But then there's also aliens, so like it's... Yeah. What do you escape into? A world where you still have to fight. Yeah, uh, so it's like it's like this captor and then broken legs, or this captor and then aliens after. I mean. And potential acid. Like, death means acid. Broken legs, though. <laughs> broken <laughs> legs. Ugh, I got a bad ankle, and I twist it all the time, and it's just, it's nothing close to breaking it. I don't want to break it. <laughs> both I, of them. I really, yeah, bro, both of them. Yeah. Um, so Annie. Yeah, Annie, I, I guess. Oh, that is that is a horrible decision to make. I'd like to see a parody of this done with J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. That's interesting. <laughs> like a crazy Harry Potter fan. That sounds great. This this movie will... Do you think this movie's going to be remade soon? I don't think so. Eventually everything's going to be remade, right? I don't think this one is. Unless, um, who is it that does all the Stephen <laughs> King movies for Netflix? Oh, Mike Flanagan? If he wants to. I don't think I Mike... they will. <laughs> I, yeah, right? If he says so. If my, He's like, you know what? I still have the bed from Gerald's game. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> I, his next one could have been Del- Del- Dolores Claiborne, maybe. Because Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's game are uh, like mirrors of each other in, mm. in some degree. Um, He's doing Doctor Sleep, right? Is he? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Mike Flanagan wouldn't touch a property that's already been adapted because he probably has too much respect for it. Like House on Haunted Hill? I mean, like a Stephen King property. Or the property. Haunting of Hill House? <laughs> a Stephen King property mm. that's already been adapted. Okay, we haven't done ratings, so what? Is, what is your rating of Misery? I want to give it a higher rating, but I'm giving it a three out of four. I'm also a three out of four. That end, that final showdown, right? It's so earned, where he just, like, smashes her over the head with the typewriter, and it's just, it's so bloody, and he is up, a, he's really up against the wall on this one, because he can't, fi- he can barely fight. And well, she- and it's also the very end of the rope. Like there is, she's already killed the police officer, and she's coming in to kill him. And there's no more time left. No matter, yep. there's no bargaining chip. There's no convincing her. There's no warming her over. Like she is convinced, and it's happening. So, like even if he's not at his peak strength or not ready, he just has to go for it. But he he still uses his charm to buy himself another 
another day, like another few hours where he can write the rest of the book. They can bring misery out into the world and then they can murder suicide each (laughs) other. Right. But again, like his habits, we've got a single cigarette, a single match, some, some champagne. uh, But he finally gets to burn a book. He wants to burn. And so that way she gets on the floor where he can bash her. Like, Oh, it's a great ending. Mm-hmm. It is such a vicious, bloody fight, and it's so worth it. Totally. And, you know, unlike most Stephen King stories and most Stephen King adaptations, it ends in such a brilliant way, uh, where he's staring at the waitress who's coming to him, who he sees as Annie Wilkes, and he's like, I don't think I'm ever going to get over that. I'm always going to see her everywhere I look. And then we see that it's just a regular person asking if he wants a piece of cake. Uh, but, no, 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 she comes to say that she's his number one fan. He goes, that's very nice of you. Credits. Oh, P-T-S-D. <laughs> right? So well done. And like his, the look on his face is great too because he knows it's not real, uh, but it still scares him. Uh, but he's still- It's something ch- that's going to be with him forever. Like exactly. This, this is what he's got to deal with now. Yeah. Anytime a fan says that to him, which might be every time he's in public. Mm-hmm. But he's stopped caring about what other people think. He's not writing for his fans. He's not writing for critics. He's writing for himself. Mm. Writing for the fans is what got him into this mess, kind of. And uh, it finally doesn't matter. He's writing something for himself. Oh. Which is hilarious because he, to escape, he had to write for Annie for his audience. It's a fucking good movie. <laughs> oh, I, I want to give it a higher than 3.5 out of 4, but it's like, it doesn't have a lot to it. That's the thing is, it's just a simple story. Like, it's yeah. really well done and the characters are great, but um, you could write the synopsis in a sentence or two. So oh, yeah. it's it's just um, really confined. So there's only so much it can do. Yeah. Maybe some ghosts next time. No, I'm kidding. Maybe I don't want ghosts. <laughs> ghosts would be okay. Uh, but we want to hear what you thought of both of these films. So tweet at us at NOFS Podcast. You can find us on Facebook in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS. We also have an official subreddit. If you haven't checked that out, we share uh, photos, memes, articles, that kind of stuff there. That is reddit.com slash r slash nightmare on film street. And of course, if you could leave a five-star rating and review of the podcast wherever you're hearing it, it would help get the show in front of more fiends and grow the horde. We are controlling transmission. Have a trouble with a <laughs> Nightmare on Film Street is brought to you by Baphomet & Co. Small batch soap inspired by horror and the macabre. This week's pick is the Mary Brown Bar. An elusive soap that is as black as they come. Intoxicating deep wood. Sharp and confronting. Inspired by the 1999 film The Blair Witch Project by Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Memories of an endlessly confounding wood doubling back on itself. An evasive trickster who is perhaps not a trickster at all, conjuring up something awful under the cover of Nightfall. Get 10% off your order with the code NIGHTMARE at baffmintonco.com. That's 10% off with the code NIGHTMARE. Baffmint and Co. Made by hands, sometimes severed. Want to reach the cool creeps? Advertise with Nightmare on Film Street to get your brand out of the shadows. For more information, head to nofspodcast.com slash advertise. This show is edited, improvised, and... Uh, tweeted. Researched? Yes. <laughs> it's mostly just tweeted and talked about by Kim and myself, but it is listener-supported. Head over to patreon.com slash nightmare on film street to find out about all of the cool extra bonus content, hours of bonus episodes available to you as a supporter of the show for as little as a coffee a month.
Yeah, and we are also uploading right as we speak a bonus episode for our Patreon supporters. Continuing the conversation on this week's episode, we're going to play a little game that John's put together that I'm going to do horribly well at. I'm calling it Oh Captor, My Captor. And you can download that at <laughs> patreon.com slash nightmare on Film Street. Yeah, we're going to see how good Kim remembers some other captive captor movies. And Spoiler alert. I don't know any of them. <laughs> that's okay. Well, it's it's multiple choice. You'll do just fine. <laughs> but that's it from us this week. We'll be back at you again in two Thursdays from now. I'm Kim. I'm John. Stay, Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive. Just long enough to tell the tale of the nightmare on Film Street. Ow! Help us grow the horde. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Continue this week's conversation on Twitter by following at NOFS Podcast. And as always, more terror can be found lurking on our website, www.nightmareonfilmstreetpodcast.com. Until next week, stay creepy, fiends. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.